Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I didn't date anybody outside of my race until I got married. I, I married a white guy, a white man, when I was in my early 30s. Um, he was the first white person I had ever kissed or gone on a date with. I had just, it never even occurred to me to date outside my race before that. I mean, it wasn't a challenge so much as I had to adjust constantly my ideals about what my relationship was going to look like. I'd always thought that I'd end up with a black man with, with black children and that we live in a black, you know, kind of micro society of our friends and there would be no code switching. You know, this would be I could be who I was with these people, and that would be it. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Laura, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm a huge fan of your show. Well, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about your work uh, when it rolled through my Instagram newsfeed because my friend Rima Zaman shared an article uh, titled White Women, I'm Glad You're Showing Up, but I'm Not Sure I Trust You Just Yet. And the title alone struck me so much because I just I related it to it on so many levels, because when I've had white people complain to me about certain things that you kind of realize like, well, this isn't really a problem for you as much as, you know, you're making your problem my problem, uh, which was really strange. But before we get into all that, I want to start asking, where in the world did you grow up and what impacted where you grew up uh, end up having on the life, uh, on your life trajectory and the choices that you've made with your career? Um, thank you for that question. I, I grew up entirely in the United States, born in Chicago, left when I was four, um, lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts until high school aged. Then I lived in Berkeley um, through high school. And I did a brief stint in Florida where my father has lived since I was four in uh, Fort Lauderdale. And then I've mm-hmm. been in Los Angeles since 1988. Yeah. And um, so my parents were hippies. They were um had a very diverse, eclectic, kind of intellectual, artistic group of friends um, of all races. 
And I grew up in a very diverse environment, but I'm skewing mainly black, but there were always all kinds of people around. Mm -hmm. However, in, in, in school, because I went to independent schools in, in Cambridge. Um, so the, the years before high school, I was the only black kid in my whole school for a while. And then, um, there were a couple more that came in in lower grades. So I was just the only black kid in my class. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, you know, that was all right. It wasn't, it wasn't terrible. Um, no one's dating yet by that in those years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, I think that's, that's when it really becomes a problem when people start selecting people to, to be with, to date, to, uh-huh. you know, to court. Um, and that's when the lack of diversity would, would have been a problem for me. But at that age, I was just kind of part of, but I was always different then at the same time. Um, so I just, I learned at a very early age to adapt and adjust, um, to code switch, which is something that people talk about a lot. Like I could speak with all my white friends one way, um, speak at home another way with my black cousins another way. Wow. Okay, so the, the, that alone, right there, you know, raises so many different questions. As you might imagine, it's it's funny that you you know observed uh, you know like when people start dating people is the moment that you became much more aware of how you're different. Because I grew up as one of like a handful of Indian kids in a small Texas town where I had the exact same experience. Where mm-hmm. you know third through about seventh grade, it didn't really matter, and then suddenly you just start to feel really self conscious about your race yeah. in a way that you never did before. Uh, but before we get into that, you know. In your parents' generation, uh, you know, I mean, it sounds like they've raised you with sort of this very diverse environment. What what did they teach you about race growing up? Um, you know, I I had this this incident once where we were at an amusement park, some kids from my neighborhood and I, we were all black, and this was in Boston. And we were there by ourselves, I guess. I don't remember an adult being with us. I was about 10 years old. And the, um, the, the gentleman that was like the ride operator a- after we went on the roller coaster for the third time said, Oh, it must be watermelon day. Look at all these little N words here. Mm. And the kids in my group were furious. And one of them actually tried to fight him, which was the most traumatic thing for me. Cause I had never seen anybody fight, let alone a little kid trying to fight an adult. So when I got home, I asked my mom why everybody was so angry. I had no idea that watermelon was something that would be, you know, said derogatorily toward me. And I didn't know what the N word was. I'd never heard it. Um, that was the first conversation I ever remember having about race. My mother was shaking. She was so furious. And what I know now is that both my parents grew up in Jim Crow. They were both abused and, and beaten. Um, and by the nuns in the Catholic schools that they went to, um, for being black, period. Wow. So they had terrible racist experiences growing up. You know, both my parents are black. And so they had really done their best to protect me from that. And up until that moment, they had been successful. Yeah. So, like, for you, what impact did that have on your own sort of way of socializing in the world. I mean, to have heard that from your parents, to have had that experience, um, you know, because that, I think even when, you know, we were talking, you and I were just mentioning Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, and mm-hmm. the interesting thing that she mentioned to me is how, you know, 
we have almost these subconscious stereotypes of black people, all of us. Yeah. And it just really struck me like we have these subconscious biases, even, you know, and she quotes a sociologist and he says, you know, what kind of person would say that, you know, say, think these kinds of things. He was like, your closest friends, mm-hmm. you know, people who are kind, people who are anything but racist, but they still have the bias. Right. Um, and so I wonder when you had that experience, what kinds of decisions did it make about how you would go about, you know, making your way in the world and interacting with people, particularly people of a different race? Um, well, let me, let me just back up a little bit because really, I just remember the first conversation my parents had with me about race. Cause I mentioned that my parents were divorced when I was little, I used to fly by myself back and forth, starting at age five from came from Boston to Florida to see my dad. And, you know, there were obviously no cell phones. Then I was a really little kid traveling alone. So the, the advice my parents gave me is if I got in trouble, if I got lost, look for a sister. And a sister is a black woman, not, not a nun. <laughs> and yeah. I would, so that was said to me that if I needed to be safe, I needed to find somebody that looked like me. So wow. that, that, and that was actually, I mean, it was good advice for me. Everybody that I found was very nice. Every time I got in trouble, I searched for a black woman. And she got me where I needed to go. So, um, so that was, that was really the base for how I operated. I, I didn't feel unsafe necessarily, but if I needed to feel safe, I would find black people to feel Mm -hmm. safe with. What my mother told me that day that I came home from the amusement park was that he, this was something that people say when they hate black people. And it had never occurred to me that anybody would hate anybody that they didn't know. like. You know, I, I, there were people that I hated. I'm putting that in air quotes at my school because they were mean or they didn't like right. me or whatever, but I had, I knew them. <laughs> and yeah. I would never have not, not, not liked them or hated them just because of what they look like. So that, that definitely impacted the way I walked into rooms from then on. Um, that, that, you know, that kind of talisman or, or instruction I had to look for a, a sister was much more enforced. So when I walked into rooms where there were no black people, I did not feel as safe from that mm-hmm. point forward. Wow. And, uh, you know, the way that I was raised, I told you, was very diverse. School was not, but socially it was pretty diverse. So I didn't really have that issue until I got into high school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, I, I kind of wonder, you know, how that influences your friendships, because I know, you know, you have another article on, on you know, HuffPost titled, I have a white boyfriend. Does that make me any less black? Yeah. Um, so that's such an interesting contrast to say, OK, you know what? The paradox there is strange to me because you're like, you know, you're taught that to feel unsafe uh, around people who are not black and yet you have mm-hmm. a white boyfriend. How does that play out in your relationship? <laughs> well, for, I didn't date anybody outside of my race until... I got married. I, I married a white guy, um, a white man who, when I was in my early thirties, um, he was the first white person I had ever kissed or gone on a date with. I had just, it never even occurred to me to date outside my race before that. Um, and, and it was, it was definitely, uh, what's the word I want to look for? It wasn't a challenge so much as I had to adjust constantly my my ideals about what my relationship was going to look like. I'd always thought that I'd end up with a black man with with 
black children and that we live in a black, you know, kind of micro society of our friends. And there would be no code switching. You know, this would be, I could be who I was with these people and that would be it. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I fell in love with a white man. He and I had two kids, we got divorced. And then I fell in love with another white man, the one that I'm with currently. And, you know, it's a, it's a lot of negotiating with myself um, about my identity because my identity as a black woman feels threatened when I'm not with another black person. And I, I don't even know if that makes any sense. Yeah. No, I wrote that article, you know? So, you know, the thing that, you know, you've been, you've alluded to code switching twice. And now, you know, Mm -hmm. the thing that that reminds me of is, you know, I always tell my roommates, I was like, look, if I date or marry an Indian girl and she comes home, there are all these sort of code switching things that don't have to happen. You know, the example I'll give you is this. So, you know, no matter how long you've been dating an Indian girl, it could be a year and you could be having all the sex in the world at your apartment. You bring that girl home for the first time. She sleeps in a separate room right. at your parents' house. Right. And it's understood. You know, I, my, my brother-in-law jokes that his mom thought that he was sleeping on the couch and my sister was sleeping in a bed even after they started living together. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so what I wonder is, how that works because I'll often hear this, you know, I've heard some version of this from black people where if they're like dating a white, you know, person, they mm-hmm. get some sort of criticism of a, you know, being a sellout or, you yeah. know, if you're like a brown guy dating, you know, a white girl, they call you Oreo, mm-hmm. you know, these kinds of things. Yeah. So how does the, like what happens in terms of response, like your parents, your relatives and your black friends when they see this, you know, and how does the code switching actually happen? And, and for the people who don't understand what code switching is, can you explain it? Yeah. I mean, I think the best way to explain it with regard to me is that I would say and do things around my black friends that I wouldn't around my white friends. Um, There's a different lexicon that I could and did use with them only mainly because I would would be a lot of explaining myself if if I said the same things to my black friends that I do to my white friends. Be like, what do you mean by that? I don't understand. So I just switch it up and say something that they will understand instead of saying it the way that I would normally say it to my black friends. Yeah. Um, but sometimes code switching, of course, can be speaking another language. Like someone who is Spanish speaking can switch it up and break into Spanish when they've, when you don't even know that they speak Spanish. Right. And mm-hmm. that kind of thing is more common, but that is also code switching what I'm talking about. Yeah. And now, um, I'm sorry, I forgot your question. Yeah, no, no worries. Uh, I mean, as far as, you know, sort of having grown up, you know, with two black parents, having this sort of, you know, micro community of, of largely black people. Yeah. Um, when you go and marry a white person, you know, how does that impact right. the dynamics that right. you have with your friends and family? Um, certainly my, my, my brothers, I have five brothers um, and they are all younger than me. They're all like six, four, six, five. They're, they're formidable, <laughs> these guys. <laughs> and um, two of them had never spent any time with white people. So when, and they don't live here. So they, they live in other parts of the country. But when I brought them all here to, not just to meet Scott, but, you know, for a gathering and Scott was there, they really, it was obvious they had no idea how to act around him. It was really <laughs> awkward. It was like I brought a gazelle into the living room. <laughs> yeah. And they were all like, like they froze and they, they were speaking like, 
Yeah, I don't know. It was just so weird. It was so awkward. But then, you know, now like my dad and my brothers, my mom always loved Scott. She loved him from the beginning. My friends, there wasn't any problem with him. There was a little bit of an, uh, a couple of them were incredulous that this was going to work because I had been, I had been known to them as someone who preferred black people. That's, that's how they thought of me. So I think they thought that my relationship with the first white man and then even the second was going to be a flash in the pan and that I would go back to black people. But once black men, but once they decided that this was a good thing for me, they were all on board, um, including my brothers, including my father. No. Um, what is it like for, for, you know, from the side of your husband, like his experience of this? Um, you mean, for your boyfriend, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, for, my boyfriend. For, yeah, for your boyfriend. Yeah. I, it's, it's, it, it was a challenge for him too. Um, you know, there were just, you know, I, like I wrote in that article, he's, he's really white. You know, my my ex-husband is white, but he's very much like steeped in hip hop culture. Okay. Um, And not in a a wannabe way at all. He just, he grew up in Brooklyn around it, um, made a career out of, you know, film and music that of that genre. He just really loves it. He has a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of black friends. And so we shared the same culture almost, yeah. um, even though he was white. Scott and I don't share a culture at all. You know, he grew up listening to Dave Matthews and, <laughs> and it was, I, I had never heard of the Dave Matthews band until he and I dated. And yeah. he was just stunned by that. Like what? And, and I didn't particularly care for the music that he likes. Like I'm a straight up hip hop head, which is, you know, Kind of silly, but that's the music I grew up on in Mm. the eighties, eighties hip hop all the way through. That's what I knew. So you mean before white people and boy bands ruined it? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Like I always say it was like boys to men. You remember those old school hip hop and then suddenly you got, you know, boy bands and it was just like, ah, man, this is crap. You're taking it over. You're taking it over. But so yeah, Scott and I don't share a culture. Um, and in addition to that, he's an outdoors guy and I'm, I'm a city mouse. Like yeah. I don't want to be outside any longer than I have to, unless I'm playing tennis <laughs> honestly, <laughs> or by the pool. I like yeah. that too, but I, I'm not going hiking. I'm certainly not going <laughs> mountain biking or, you know, any of the stuff that he loves to do was really foreign to me. So oh. the culture shock was the hardest thing. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I can really, it's funny because, you know, my roommates go hiking and it's funny. I'm like this anomaly for an Indian person. I'm an avid surfer and a snowboarder, which is both, which are both predominantly white sports. Yeah. Anytime they invite me to go hiking, I'm like, no, dude, brown people don't hike. Have you ever seen an Indian person in a Patagonia ad? There's a reason for that. Uh, But, you know. It turns out they do. It, 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 like they said, you know, they they came back once. They're like, "Hey, we just came back, and there were a gaggle of Indians hiking with <laughs> a gaggle." Yeah, and it was like, "Yeah, you found that the rare." Well, I mean, so much so that you know, I remember my you know grandmother's. You know, one of my cousins, he would go visit his grandmother, and you know, we would tell our parents, "It's like, you know, we don't do anything when we go to India. We just sit around and like eat, you know, food and gossip." And like our friends, like they go hiking in the Himalayas, and our f- parents would say some version of, "Well, that shit is white for white people, not for us." Right. Right. You know, like like camping or hiking or any of that stuff. People never did that. Bundling up on the beach. Like, why? Go to a tropical one. (laughs) Well, it's funny because the comedian Carlos Bencia said, he's like, you know, white people go camping. He was like, for people who are minorities, that's voluntarily living in poverty. Right. Right. We don't, we're not attracted to that. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure there are some exceptions. The world that I grew up in, that was not a thing. And yeah. it's still not a thing for me, you know? So, yeah, well, yeah. I think it also, you know, uh, I want to come back to this in a second because it really brings about a lot of, of conversation about stereotypes. But I want to ask one other thing mm. um, about your children. 
you yeah. know, who grow up mixed race. Yes. Like for them, what is racism like to, and, and when they're out with their dad versus being out with you, is the experience different? I'm, I'm sure it is. So you know, my kids are, are 20 and 22 and um, they are both boys. They are biracial. Yes, but they present black and I'm not going to say, I think that's easier um, I think it's, but I think when you're racially ambiguous, there's a, there's an extra layer to how you're perceived by the world. Yeah. So for them, there's no identity question. Um, when they go out, they are identified as black easily. Um, Brian, my, my ex and I did our absolute best to raise them in as a diverse environment as possible, giving them, Brian's Jewish. So giving them their Jewish heritage giving them their black culture and heritage. We cherry pick schools for them where there was absolutely the most diversity while giving them, you know, the best education. So I think my kids grew up a little like I did, you know, not race is, was not their first identity when yeah. they walked into school. It was their basketball capabilities. It was how they did on, you know, the PSAT. It was, what girls, you know, they were talking to, like those were the primary things by which they were identified and not by race, even though I'm, I know that was factored in, it wasn't the first thing. And so they, they were never really, you know, th there was an incident once where someone posted a, a picture of my son on Instagram when he was 11 and it had the N word in it, a white kid. And I went off. And I went off and the school suspended this kid and I yelled at the mother and she brought the son over to me. And I was just so furious. But my kid was kind of like, mom, we all say it. It's not a big deal. Like, wow. it doesn't mean the same thing to me that it means to you. And although I, I accepted him <laughs> saying that, I, I was still furious because to me, it's always off limits, no matter what. No. Um, but they, their experience of race is much, much different. They didn't, they, they didn't and don't feel the need to um, protect themselves the same way that I learned to, you know, like high school age and up. Hmm. Well, I think that makes sort of a perfect segue to talking uh, about stereotypes. You know, like hmm. I remember, so I had two black roommates, one of who is still a good friend to this day. And we went there. And, you know, I remember going to meet them, meet them. And, I, you know, I asked this question with my friends, like, you realize how racist that sounds, right? And I was like, you guys smoke weed, right? Not because they were black, but because I wanted to make sure that I was living with people who smoke weed because I do. <laughs> you know? um, but I kind of also realized that subconsciously, I probably did just assume that. Right, um, right. So, you know, as a black woman in America, what are the stereotypes that you have to overcome? And what do you think are the differences between the stereotypes that black men have to deal with versus black women? Oh, gosh, they're so different. Um, so I think my stereotypes, because of how I am, because of how I was raised and how I present, are that there is there's a more of a fetishizing of me where I am the token. I am the acceptable black friend. I'm not threatening. Um, I'm the example and, um, and usually, you know, either the only one or one of two or three in whatever situation I'm in. Yeah. And so, you know, my, my 
racism toward me and racism to me is anytime anybody treats anybody differently because of their race. To me, that's racism. Bigotry is something totally different where that is, you know, mean-spirited bullying, um, hate speech. Like that's, that's bigotry to me. So I don't have very many bigoted people in my life, if any. Um, but I do have a lot of racist people, people yeah. that do treat me differently because I'm black. And that goes from, you know, being surprised that, you know, how, about how articulate I am. Um, and saying it to me as though it's a compliment when it's really a microaggression, you know, to, to notice that out loud to me. (laughs) Notice it to yourself. Oh, that's fine. (laughs) But don't say it out loud to me as though I'm going to say thank you. Um, because it's, it's a microaggression. Like I said, you know, talking, there's, there's a whole, I could do a whole podcast for you about white women and my hair. You know, my hair is, is fetishized by white women all the time to the point where I've had people cross the room to put their fingers in it because wow. I wear my hair natural. It's curly. Like right now it's actually in braids, but when it's not in braids, I wear it natural and curly. And it has just become this source of fascination with white women simply because it's different than theirs, but it's also different than I think a lot of black hair used to be. And so there'll be questions that are honestly rude about my hair that they don't seem to think anything of asking me. Like, how do you get it like that? What do you, what do you do to it to get it to stand up? (laughs) Is it, is your hair nappy or is it curly? I don't know the difference. Wow. You could probably do a movie with all these things. Oh, well, movies have been done for sure. So those are some of the things that I get. I think for black men, like when I said the first thing that I, I mentioned before about me being fetishized is because I'm not threatening. I think almost everyone's threatened by black men. And so there's a fear factor that comes in the room as they do. And, you know, it is, it is the scariest thing for me because I know that when my kids get pulled over by the police, that policeman's probably scared of them. So everything that they do, every movement they make is going to be spotlighted or highlighted because there's a fear factor. And I'm not saying the policemen are wrong for being afraid. That's just how they are. But, but probably my kid is going to be, I was just watching this driving while black thing on TV and how many five times more likely, four times more likely in any part of the country that you go to, black people are that times more likely to be pulled over by the police than white drivers. So when we're pulled over, when black men are pulled over, because they're seen as threatening, you know, my kid reaching for his registration in the glove box could end up like so many others that we've seen on TV if he's not narrating, if he's not moving slowly enough. So the policeman's scared. My kid's probably scared, right? They're getting pulled over. They understand what the situation here is in America. They might do something stupid because they're afraid. So it is really, really scary. The, the, the things that black men have to endure and go through. And we talked about systemically in this country, um, because they are seen as threatening is, is terrifying. You know, I, I don't sleep well when both my kids aren't home. You know, you know, is is but you know, it, like I, I remember going through the, when we're talking about Isabel's book, Cast, mm-hmm. and she was talking about how media portrays and stereotypes black people, 
Mm-hmm. And um, so that there are two questions that that come from this for me. One of them is about the police thing, but there's another question. I can't remember the damn name of the movie. It, it's with Tommy Davidson, and uh, he's you know trying to rise up through the mailroom to become this hotshot ad exec, and he has a. I think it's boom. No, boomerang is the Eddie Murphy one. Oh, right, right, right. I, I know which one you're talking about. Um, so basically, it's him. Uh, not Damon Wayans. The guy's name is Wayman Tisdale. I remember that the character's uh-huh. name. And one of the things that he, you know, the guy who's trying to write Tommy, Dav- the Tommy Davidson character, is constantly making fun of this, you know, Damon, you know, uh, Wayman character for being a black guy who's too white because of the fact that he yeah. is, you know, articulate and like all this other stuff, like he makes fun of him. And I'm wondering, you know, is that with this whole code switching thing, is that something that you ever experience when you're on your black friends and they see you? Cause you've talked about presenting as, you know, you use that phrase multiple times. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Not around my friends. Okay. Most of my friends are like me. Yeah. So we were kind of cut from the same cloth, but certainly in, um, when I lived in Florida for the years that I lived there, um, I was taking classes at a local community college and you know, there's, I don't know if you know, there's this book called why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? All my list of things to order on Amazon. It keeps showing up. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a really great study in why yeah. that happens, but basically it's that thing that my parents taught me when I was little, it's just safe, right? So I would go to where the black kids gathered to those tables, whatever those look like. And boy, (laughs) I mean, first of all, the, the language that was used, it it was almost like the people that live there spoke a different language than I did. (laughs) I was always saying, sorry, pardon. (laughs) I didn't get that. (laughs) It was a totally different lexicon. Um, it's slang. It was, you know, it was hood slang, but for that, that dialect was for that particular area of South Florida. And they were not having me like (laughs) someone, someone, oh, you know who it was? It was, this is jumping ahead. This is later on Tony Braxton, who's a really beautiful singer. Our kids went to school together and I, we were soccer moms together. And I came up to her once when on the, you know, the bleachers and the bench and she didn't see me until I got next to her. And she's like, girl, you were throwing out Caucasian vibes all the way over here. I didn't even know you were a sister. You need to throw out some sister <laughs> vibes and approach me next time. And this is how I was treated by that crowd in Florida. They were not, I was throwing out Caucasian vibes to them. They were not having me. And I tried, I was a source of curiosity, but I was never allowed in. Like I could never have been part of them because I did not grow up the way they did. I did not speak the way they did. I didn't understand things the same way. Um, I was, yeah, I was distrusted because of that. Yeah. Wow. Um, you know, the other thing that, you know, you were talking about, you know, being polite pulled over by police, particularly, you know, black men are much more likely to be pulled over. The thing that struck me when I was reading Isabel Wilkerson's book is she said, you know, what we don't do in the media is she said, we actually don't tell the other stories of white people who actually, apparently she said, we just tend to amplify stories of black people far more in media than we do white people. And she said, if you actually look at the numbers, 
there it actually I don't remember the exact statistics, but when I saw that, I was like, wow. So even the media is guilty of perpetuating stereotypes that are negative of black people. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's, I was wondering about that, too. Like we're seeing black men after black men getting shot by the police. And I wonder, are they just not showing white men that get shot by the police or, or is it not happening or white women? Um, there aren't, you know, the, the, it's disproportionate for men, as you know, they're what we're seeing are the, Brianna Taylor, um, which is a tragic, tragic case, but it was kind of a fluke. They weren't coming for her. You know, they didn't even know she was there. They did, they, they were coming for a black man and it's really black man disproportionately that are getting shot. But I, I don't know how, I don't know what, what, why that is and what it looks like. But, um, I do know that statistically we are more likely to get pulled over in the first place. So that's not the media. That's just the data, you know, that they're, like I said, we are more of a threat on site, you know, we're profiled. So, you know what, I want to ask, you know, what role, sort of environment and context play. And I'll give you sort of context to, you know, frame this question. I, to this day, I can never forget the experience of this friend that I grew up with. Um, I remember w- spending the night at his house in seventh grade and his mom would, you know, use the N word gratuitously. And we're not talking like, you know, and this was you know a small Texas town, but his parents weren't sort of, you know, ignorant, uneducated rednecks. They were PhDs you know, from like one of the wealthiest families in town. But the day that I never forgot, um, when I was in ninth grade, two black kids got in a fight at school. One stabbed the other and one of them died. And so we were all sent home from school. And my dad, you know, was a postdoc, so he couldn't pick me up. And he said, "Okay, go home with David's mom. And, you know, she used the N-word and she said, now that that, you know, N-word got, you know, killed, you can go get your haircut. And she drove us to the country club to go and have lunch where we were served lunch by a black waiter. And you, I mean, if you're a minority, it's very hard to shake. And yet, you know, I was accepted freely, you mm-hmm. know, because the stereotype of Indians is like, we're kind of the model minority. And, you know, even yeah. the Seven Eleven stereotype, like if people don't know, it's like, yeah, the Seven Eleven guy owns 20 of them. Right. You know? right. Um, yeah. But then this same friend actually grew up to become a police officer, mm-hmm. which to me was so horrifying to think that, you know, this is the kind of racism that was just reinforced in his household. And it, you know, again, these were actually very nice people to me. Right. Beyond that thing. So, you know, what environment do, what role do environment context, you know, and parents play? And, and, you know, I, I guess that takes us to here we are. What? I mean, that was 30 plus years ago and we're still having the same conversation. Yeah. Well, First of all, that is definitely a good example of bigotry. That's not just racism, Uh um, what you're describing in that family. And so the mother was a bigot and not just a racist. Um, And, you know, I wrote an article called White Parents Teach Your Kids About Racism. Or it was my 11-year-old was called the N-word, White Parents Teach Your Kids About Racism. That's also in HuffPo. And, you know, I think that especially now, um, you know, it's, I had to talk with another podcaster about this is the best way to provide the best foundation for your child to go out and be a global citizen 
is not just by talking to them about race and that kind of, and, and, and other, other, it's not just race, you know, there's culture, there's heritage, there's religion about diversity of any kind, socioeconomic, but by showing them by the people that you have in your home, the people that you fraternize with, right? So if that black person in their lives was at their dinner table, instead of serving them dinner, then that your friend would have learned something else about black people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Seeing them as, as, as included. If you have all white friends, all white dinner tables, then you're probably going to raise a child that is not fully prepared to be, like I said, a global citizen because they won't have had the interactions with people at that level to know how to, how to interact with them. And, and then you have bias. Um, and like you said at the beginning, I don't know if this is when we're recording, but everybody has bias, everybody. Um, but some people are more biased and some people's biases have, um, you know, like they're tinged with bigotry or they are, they are bigoted. And so then, then you have another layer of this that becomes really harmful and potentially deadly. Mm. Well, I think that's a, it's an interesting place to bring us full circle to where we started, which was your article titled white women. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. glad you're showing up, but not sure I trust you just yet. And I think that, you know, the, the conclusion of that article, when I read that, that was when I immediately contacted Rima and said, Hey, can you introduce Laura? Cause I want to talk to her about this. You said, you know, white women, I'm not saying that you can't be scared, outraged or sad. I'm not saying that we don't appreciate you and your efforts to connect. I understand that you've lost something too. And I want you to feel your sorrow and indignation but please know that your grief doesn't automatically entitle you to an invitation to our wake. Many conversations need to be happening right now, but some of those can only occur between people of color. Mm -hmm. That struck me so much because I thought it, you know, like I said, I related to it when I, I said, you know, like when a white person comes to me to complain about something in my own work that, um, lacks diversity, I'm kind of like, the, the example I'll give you, you know, for example, I remember, uh, you, I did a, a TEDx talk, And so I found these stock images and, you know, I gave the talk and the speakers bureau was run entirely by white people came back and they said, the talk was great. There's only one problem. What's that? All the, you know, kids in the slides were white. I was like, well, doesn't the fact that an Indian guy is giving the talk kind of compensate (laughs) for Look, I didn't notice that it didn't even occur to me. Right. right. Which I think that's a sort of perfect parallel to what you're talking about here. Mm hmm. So I yeah, guess the question yeah, is, what do you want white people listening to this to know? Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> is that like another hour conversation? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I would say that this particular time in history, where we are right now, circa 2020, starting, like I said, like I mentioned before, with the death of Breonna Taylor and all the deaths that have occurred, the high profile deaths of black people that have occurred since then have really wounded um, us culturally, Black people in particular. And I think what's happening is there's this phenomenon of a lot of white people, especially women, which is why I wrote that article, waking up and seeing this for the first time and starting to get motivated or excited in a, in a not in like, I'm glad this happened, but can you believe this is happening kind of way? And so they're coming to this with this fervor and this excitement about we could, this is terrible and we should do something. 
And we're all like, y'all are late. Like we've been saying this since, you know, my grandparents were, or my great grandparents and my great, you know, like on and on and on. We've been talking about this. We've never stopped talking about it. And I get that you're excited about it right now, but y'all need to chill because we are so wounded and I'm glad you want to get activated and I'm glad you want to start, but don't come to me to tell me things about racism right now that you've just discovered. Don't do that. Tell, tell it to your other white friends, educate each other, bring up the level of consciousness in this country, please. But don't come to me all like jazzed or motivated to do something about something that has been happening to me my entire life and generations before me as if it's the first time that it's happened. Hmm. So that's what I think I want to say. Yeah. So when something is so deeply woven and embedded into systems and structures that have put in place to create the context that we're living in, um, you know, how do you get out of this? I mean, you know, we, because it doesn't seem like you're going to rewrite 200 years of history by electing a new president. No, <laughs> gosh, wouldn't that Regardless be nice? How tall <laughs> that person is. I mean, even with Obama, you didn't get that to happen. Right. Right. Yeah, man. Eight years of him was, well, we won't, I won't get too much into politics. Yeah. Um, but I do love that man. I, um, you know, I, I think here's, here's the good news is that post George Floyd's death, more policies and laws were changed in favor of black people and, um, you know, a, a way from the way things were done, which was racist in many, many states, towns, um, cities, more policies were changed and by law in seven weeks and it had been done in 400 years. Like, wow. not really. It was, it was actually in seven years, but it was so, so more policies were changed in seven weeks post George Floyd than had been changed in seven years in favor of black people and people of color, not just black people. So there is a movement, which I fear is faltering um, because so much spotlight is on our current situation with the election. But there is, there is movement toward changing the policies that need to be changed in order to create equity, you know, which is different than equality, right? And I don't know if people really understand the difference. I'm probably not going to explain it well. But, but equity is, is really just giving everybody the same chance, not making sure that everybody has the same thing, which is equality, right? But just that everybody has the same chance. And, to, to be able to do that, um, policies and laws need to change so that Black people have the same chance as everybody else. And it's yeah. not a handout and it's not, but it is change and people are going to fight it because no one likes change anyway. Um, change is always scary. But like I said, it is changing. So I am hopeful and I'm going to do whatever I can personally um, to see it continue. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Um, well, this has been really, really incredible. I've, I've just enjoyed talking to you so much. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um, to make somebody unmistakable. 
Oof. I mean, I, I think that I think that someone has had to have gone through and, and, and been aware and present during all the changes and experiences of their life and taken from them what they need to take from them instead of instead of ignoring them or instead of numbing them and really stayed present for these things to bring it like if you can't um use your like I don't think opinions are very valid personally the the thing that I put the most stock in or someone is someone's experience someone wants to give me advice I'm really not here for it but if someone wants to tell me their experience with something that I I'm going through or about to go through I'm all ears and so I think that we value all these different things um you know, in the material realm, in the intellectual realm, the academic realm, but really the thing that is of the utmost value is our experience. And so I think that's, that's the answer to that question. Hmm. Beautiful. I think that may be the most distinctive answer I've heard in a long time. <laughs> right. Uh, awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your stories and your wisdom and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work and everything else that you're up to? Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking that. And I'm going to tell you, but first, I just really have to double shout out Rima Zaman for connecting us. I'm so grateful to her. This is amazing. So thank you for that opportunity. And thank you, Rima, if you're listening for the connection, you're the best. Um, I have a, uh, my podcast, the only one in the room has a website, which is the only one pod.com. Um, my Instagram is Laura Cathcart Robbins at Laura Cathcart Robbins. It's L-A-U-R-A-C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T-R-O-B-B-I-N-S. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Laura C. Robbins. I'm on LinkedIn, Laura Cathcart Robbins, and Facebook, Laura Cathcart Robbins. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.